Section 7 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. The Theorists of Knowledge, Part 1. Locke, Berkeley, Hume, Kant. Epistemology, or theory of knowledge, did not begin in modern times. Among the Greeks, it goes back at least to Empedocles, and figures largely in the programs of the later schools. And Descartes' universal doubt seems to give the question, how can we be sure of anything, a foremost place in speculation. But the singular assurance with which the Cartesian metaphysicians presented their adventurous hypotheses as demonstrated certainties showed that with them the test of truth meant whatever told for that which on other grounds they believed to be true. In reality, the thing they called reason was hardly more than a covert appeal to authority, a suggestion that the duty of philosophy was to reconcile old beliefs with new. And the last great dogmatist, Leibniz, was the one who practiced this method of uncritical assumption to the utmost extent. Locke it is the peculiar glory of John Locke, 1632-1704, to have resumed that method of doubt which Descartes had attempted, but which his dogmatic prepossessions had falsified almost at the first start. This illustrious thinker is memorable, not only for his services to speculation, but for the example of a genuine philosophic life, entirely devoted to truth and good a character in which personal sweetness, simplicity and charm were combined with strenuous, disinterested and fearless devotion to the service of the state. Locke was a Whig when Whiggism meant advanced liberalism in religion and politics, and when that often meant a choice between exile and death. Thus, after the fall of his patron, Lord Shaftesbury, the philosopher had to take refuge in Holland, remaining there for some years lying hid even there for some time to escape an extradition order for which the government of James II had applied. It was in Holland that he wrote the essay concerning human understanding. This revolutionist in thought was no solitary recluse, but in the best sense a thorough man of the world. Educated at Westminster and Christchurch, he had in the German poet's phrase the supreme happiness of combining the seriousness of an enthusiast with the sagacity of a statesman, so that great statesmen recognized him as one of themselves. With the triumph of the Whig cause at a time when diplomacy demanded the utmost tact and skill, it was proposed to send Locke as ambassador to the court of Brandenburg, and as that would not have suited his sober habits to the court of Vienna. Weak health obliged him to decline this also. He received office in the ministry at home, taking a department where business talents were eminently required. In that capacity he bore a leading part in the restoration of the coinage, besides inspiring the Toleration Act and the Act for Unlicensed Printing. Even the wisest men make mistakes, and it must be noticed with regret that Locke's theory of toleration excluded Roman Catholics on the one side and atheists on the other the former because their creed made persecution a duty, the latter because their want of a creed 
left them no sanction for any duties whatever. To say that Locke had not our experience does not excuse him, for in both cases the expediency of toleration can be proved a priori. Romanists must be expected to suppress a heresy whose spokesman declares that when he has the power he will suppress their church. And if atheists are without moral principle, they will propagate under cover of orthodoxy negations that they are not allowed openly to profess. Locke was brought up by a Puritan father, and although in after life he wandered far from its doctrinal standards, he no doubt always retained a sense of that close connection between religion and morality which Puritanism implies. Telling about the train of thought that started his great essay, he refers it to a conversation between himself and some friends, in which they found themselves quickly at a stand by the difficulties that rose on every side. And according to an intimate friend of his, the discussion turned on the principles of morality and revealed religion. It then occurred to him that they should first ascertain what objects their understandings were or were not fitted to deal with. And the mottoes prefixed to the essay prove that the results were of a decidedly skeptical cast. Indeed, his successors, though not himself, were destined to develop them into what is now called agnosticism. We have further to note that while his continental rivals were mathematicians, our English philosopher never went deeply into mathematics, but was by calling a physician. In this, he resembles Aristotle and Sextus Empiricus among the Greeks, and so it is quite in order that with the same sort of training he should adopt Aristotle's method of experience as against Platonic transcendentalism and the skeptical relativism of Sextus, as against the dogmatism of the schools. Locke begins his essay with a vigorous polemic against the doctrine of innate ideas. The word idea, as he uses it, is ambiguous, serving to denote perceptions, notions, and propositions. But this confusion is of no practical importance, his object being to show that all our knowledge originates in experience, whereas the reigning belief was that at least the first principles of knowledge had a more authoritative, if not a mystical, source. Hobbes had been beforehand with him in deriving every kind of knowledge from experience, but had been content to assume his case, whereas Locke supports his by a formidable array of proofs. The gist of his argument is that intellectual and moral principles supposed to be recognized by all mankind from their infancy are admitted only by some, and by those only as a result of teaching. As we saw, the whole inquiry began with questions about religion and morality, and it is precisely in reference to the alleged universality and innateness of the belief in God and the moral law that Locke is most successful and the more modern anthropology teaches us about primitive man, the stronger becomes the case against the transcendental side in the controversy. Where his analysis breaks down is in dealing with the difficult and important ideas of space, time, substance, and causality, with the fatal result that such questions as how is experience itself possible, or 
how from a partial experience can we draw universal and necessary conclusions, find no place in his theory of knowledge. Of course, his contemporaries are open to the same criticism, nor indeed had the time come even for the statement of such problems. Meanwhile, the facility with which the founder of epistemology accepts fallacies whence Spinoza had already found his way out shows how little he was master of his means. According to Locke, it is a certain and evident truth that there is an eternal, most powerful, and most knowing being, which whether anyone will please to call God it matters not. On examination, the proof appears to involve two unproved assumptions. The first is that nothing can begin to exist without a cause. The second is that effects must resemble their causes. And from these it is inferred that an all-powerful being must have existed from all eternity. The alternative is overlooked, that a succession of more limited beings would answer the purpose equally well, while it would also be more consistent with our experience. But a far more fatal objection to Locke's theism results from his second assumption. This, although not explicitly stated, is involved in the assertion that for knowledge such as we possess to originate from things without knowledge is impossible. For on the same principle, matter must have been made by something material, pain by something that is pained, and evil by something that is evil. It would not even be going too far to say that by this logic I myself must have existed from all eternity, for to say that I was created by a not-myself would be to say that something may come from nothing. We have seen how Locke refused toleration to atheists on the ground that their denial of a divine lawgiver and judge destroys the basis of morality. He did not, like Spinoza, believe that morality is of the nature of things. For him, it is constituted by the will of God. Possibly, if pressed, he might have explained that what atheism denies is not the rule of right, but the sanction of that rule, the fear of supernatural retribution. Yet being, like Spinoza and Leibniz, a determinist, he should have seen that a creator, who sets in motion the train of causes and effects necessarily resulting in what we call good or bad human actions, has the same responsibility for those actions as if he had committed them himself. To reward one of his passive agents and to punish another would be grossly unjust, and at the same time perfectly useless. But how do we know that he will, on any theory of volition, reward the good and punish the bad? Because we have his word for it. And how do we know that he will keep his word? Because he is all good. But that, on Locke's principles, is pure assumption. And God, being quite sure that he has no retribution to fear, must be even more irresponsible than the atheist. The principle that nothing can come from nothing, so far from proving theism, leads logically either to pantheism or to a much more thorough monadism than the system of Leibniz. And metaphysics apart, it conflicts with the leading doctrine of the essay, that is, the fundamental distinction between the primary and the secondary qualities of matter. We think of bodies as in themselves extended, resisting and mobile, 
but not in themselves, as colored, sonorous, odorous, hot, cold, or sapid. They cause our special sensations, but cause them by an unknown power. Again we perceive, or think we perceive, both primary and secondary qualities in close union, as properties of a single object, and this object in which they jointly inhere is called a substance. And to the question, what is substance? Locke admits that he has no answer except something we know not what. He has returned to the agnostic standpoint of the Cyrenaic school. This something, for aught we know, might have created the world. Continental historians regard the whole rationalistic movement of the 18th century, or what in Germany is called the Enlightenment, Aufklärung, as having been started by Locke. But the sort of arguments that he adduces for the existence of a god prove that, in theology at least, his rationalism had rather narrow limits. Both his theism and his acceptance of Christianity on the evidence of prophecy and miracles shows no advance on medieval logic. In this respect, Spinoza and Bale, 1622-1709, were far more in line with the modern movement. Still, assuming scripture as an authoritative revelation, Locke shows that, rationally interpreted, it yields much less support to dogmatic orthodoxy than English churchmen supposed. And whatever may have been the letter of his religious teaching, there can be little doubt that the English deists, Tolan, Shaftesbury, and Anthony Collins, represented its true spirit more faithfully than the philosopher himself. Representative government and the subordination of ecclesiastical to secular authority, or better still, their separation, are both good things in themselves and favorable conditions to the life of reason. Another condition is that children should be trained to exercise their intelligence instead of relying blindly on authority. In these respects also Locke's writings acted powerfully on the public opinion of the next century, especially through the agency of French writers, France, as Macaulay justly claims, being the interpreter between England and the world. Our present business, however, is not with the diffusion, but the development of thought, and to trace this we must return to British philosophy. Barclay. George Barclay, 1684-1753, was born and educated in Ireland. The fact is of no racial or national importance, but interests us as accounting for his having received a better training in philosophy than at that time was possible in England. For the study of Locke, then proscribed at Oxford, had already been introduced into Dublin when Barclay was an undergraduate there and it was as a critical advance on Locke that his first publication, The New Theory of Vision, 1709, was offered. Next year came the epoch-making principles of human knowledge, followed in 1713 by the more popular dialogues. At twenty-nine, his work was done, and although he lived forty years longer, rising to be a bishop in the Irish church, after projecting a Christian utopia for the civilization of the North American Indians that never came to anything, and practicing every virtue under heaven, he made no other permanent contribution to thought. Barclay is at once a theorist of knowledge and a metaphysician, 
combining, in a way, the method of Locke with the method of Descartes and his successors. The popular notion of his philosophy is that it resolved the external world into a dream, or at least into something that has no existence outside our minds. But this is an utter misconception against which Berkeley constantly protested. His quarrel was not with common sense, but with the theorists of perception. To understand this, we must return for a moment to Locke's teaching. It will be remembered in what a tangle of difficulties the essay had left its author. Matter had two sets of qualities, primary and secondary, the one belonging to things in themselves, the other existing only in our minds yet both somehow combined in real substances independent of us, but acting on our senses. Substance as such is an unknown and unknowable postulate. Nevertheless, we know that it was created by God, of whom our knowledge is, if anything, inconveniently extensive. Now Berkeley, to find his way out of these perplexities, begins by attacking the distinction between primary and secondary qualities. For this purpose, his theory of vision was written. It proves, or attempts to prove, that extension is not a real attribute of things in themselves, but an intellectual construction, or what Locke would have called an idea of reflection. Till then, people had thought that its objectivity was firmly established by the concurrent testimony of two senses, sight and touch. Berkeley shows, on the contrary, that visible and tangible extension are not the same thing, that the sensations, or as he calls them the ideas, of sight and touch are two different languages whose words we learned by experience to interpret in terms of each other without their being necessarily connected. A man born blind would not at first sight know how to interpret the visual signs of distance, direction, and magnitude he would have to learn them by experience. These, in fact, are ideal relations only existing in the mind, and so we have no right to oppose mind as inextended to an extended or an external world. Having thus cleared the ground, our young idealist proceeds in his next and greatest work of the principles of human knowledge to attack the problem from another side. The world of objects revealed through sensation and reflection is clearly no illusion, no creation of our own. We find it there, changing when it changes, without or even very much against our will. What, then, is its origin in nature? Locke's view, which is the common view, tells us that it consists of material bodies, some animated and some not, and matter, the supposed substance of body, is made known to us by impressions on our organs of sense. But when we try to think of matter apart from these sensible qualities and the relations between them, it vanishes into an empty abstraction. Now, according to Berkeley, there are no abstract ideas. That is, no thoughts unassociated with some mental image besides a mere word. And matter, or inanimate substance, would be such an idea, therefore it does not exist. There is nothing but mind and its contents, what we call states of consciousness, what Locke and Berkeley call ideas. 
Whence then come the ideas of our consciousness, and whither do they go when we cease to perceive them? At this point, the new metaphysical system intervenes. Barclay says that all things subsist in the consciousness of God, and by their subsistence his existence is proved. The direct apprehension of a reality that is not ourselves only becomes possible through what would be called in modern language a subjective participation in the divine consciousness, more feebly reflected, as would seem, in the memories, imaginations, and reasonings of our finite minds. In pursuing these wonderful speculations, Berkeley deviated widely from the direct line of English philosophy, and it is difficult not to believe that the deflection was determined by the influence of Malbranche, especially when we find that the writings of the Oratorian Father were included in his college studies. Moreover, a parallel line of idealistic development derived from the same source was evolving itself at the same time in English thought. John Norris, 1657 to 1711, a correspondent of the Platonist Henry Moore, an opponent of Locke and a disciple of Malbranche, had himself found an enthusiastic admirer in Arthur Collier, 1680-1732, whose Clavis Universalis professed to be a demonstration of the non-existence or impossibility of an external world, 1713. Both Norris and Collier, like Malbranche and Barclay, were churchmen, but so strong was the drift toward idealism that Leibniz, a layman and a man of science, contributed by his monadology to the same current. Malbranche neither was nor could be a complete idealist in the sense of denying the reality of matter, for the dogma of transubstantiation bound him as a Catholic to its acceptance, while Barclay, Collier, and Leibniz as Protestants were under no such obligation. His idealism agreed more nearly with the Neoplatonic doctrine of archetypes in the divine reason among which matter was one. On the other hand, Berkeley probably borrowed from him the notion of a direct contact with God, the difference being that with the Cartesian it is conceived as an objective vision, with Locke's disciple as, if the expression may be permitted, a subjective con-consciousness. Leibniz again, while abolishing matter, retains an external world composed indeed of spirits and so far immaterial, but existing independently of God. All these systems involve the negation of two fundamental scientific principles. The first is that every change must be explained by reference to an antecedent change to which it bears a strict quantitative relation. The second is that no particular change can be referred to another change as its necessary antecedent, unless it can be shown by experience that a precisely similar couple of changes are in fact always so connected. Let me illustrate these principles by an example. I leave a kettle full of cold water on the fire, and on returning after a sufficient interval of time, I find the water boiling. Had I stayed by the fire and watched the process, my kettle would, a popular proverb to the contrary notwithstanding, have certainly boiled as soon, but also no sooner for being helped by my consciousness. 
The essential thing is that energy of combustion in the fire should be turned into energy of boiling in the water. Now what is Barclay's interpretation of the facts? Fire, kettle, water, and ebullition are what in his writings are called ideas, that is, phenomena occasionally in my mind, but always in God's mind. And according to this view, the necessary antecedent to the boiling of the water is not the fire's burning, but God's consciousness of its burning, his perception being the essence of the operation. But it is proved by experience that neither my perception nor anyone else's ever made a single drop of water boil. In other words, perception is not in this instance a vera causa. Why then should the perception of any other mind, however exalted, have that effect? Nor is this all. How does Barclay know that God exists? Because, he says, to exist is to be perceived, and therefore, for the universe to exist implies a universal percipient. But he got the idea of God from other men, who certainly did not come by it as a generalization from their perceptions. They got it by generalizing from their voluntary actions, which do produce the changes that perception cannot produce. It will be said that volitions and the feelings that prompt them exist only in consciousness. In whose consciousness? In that of a spirit. And what is spirit apart from sensation, thought, feeling, and volition? Simply one of those abstract ideas, whose existence Barclay himself denied. End of section 7